Thanks, Sean. I can't sing Shawnee or I would. <laughs> My name is Luke. I'm a recovered alcoholic. I will. And if that upsets you, too bad. <laughs> That's what my book tells me. I would like to uh, I would like to thank the committee and those responsible for inviting uh, Linda and I here tonight. It's uh, there's only one way that I could get from a Salvation Army mission to Cincinnati, Ohio, and that's through the grace of God and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've not found it necessary to take a drink or any other mood-altering stimulant since November the 16th of 1963, and for that I am grateful. I was looking at the theme up here. There must be an angle. I think of the story of old W.C. Fields, who apparently was the world's greatest atheist. One day they caught him reading the Bible. Someone said to him, W.C., what's a guy like you doing reading the Bible? He said, looking for loopholes. <laughs> How many of us come in here just to do that? We, we know them by the end of our first meeting. There's something in our book that's read at every meeting that says, if you want what we've got, do you want what we've got? I think that's an important question. I don't mean who we're married to, the car we drive, the house we live, and the job we got, and how much we make. Do you want what we've got? I think that has to be established like now. I think of the story of the son of a minister, a pastor, teenage son. said to his dad one day, when can we talk about me driving the car? He said, well, I'll tell you, son. He said, when you bring your grades up, I see you reading the Bible on a regular basis, and you get that long haircut, we'll talk. About five months later, he came back to his dad, and he said, can we talk about me driving the car? <clears throat> his dad said, well, I notice your grades have come up a bit. I've seen you reading the Bible fairly regular, but you still got that long hair. He said, you know, Dad, he said, Jacob had long hair, and Moses had long hair, and Jesus had long hair. And his dad said, you notice they walked everywhere they went. <laughs> and now that I've been up here a couple of minutes, I can tell you there's 684 people here tonight. And that was easy to find out. I just counted the years and divided by two. <laughs> You know, Alcoholics Anonymous is a... I hear a lot of people say, well, I, I got a good program today. Isn't it interesting in our book, when they're talking to the new guy, they said, do you have anything better than drinking? And he said, yes, we do. We have a fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous. And you may have a program, but if you're not in the fellowship, what are you doing with it? We, can, we belong to a fellowship, and within the fellowship, we find a program that allows me to live in harmony with the rest of the world. I was an impulsive, compulsive, repulsive drunk. <laughs> Look them up and you'll come up with a pretty good solution. And you see, the unfortunate thing that seems to be the handicap for the drunk is that he wants to be involved in everything, a part of the show, the lead part in the act, and hasn't got a clue of what in hell is going on. <laughs> it reminds me of another little story. Uh, this old drunk was standing beside the road and he was just paralyzed. And down the road come the preacher and his whole congregation. And the drunk said to him, where are you going? He said, we're going down the river for a mass baptismal. He said, you want to come? The old drunk said, yeah. So he staggered along behind him. And when they got all done, the pastor said, is there anyone else who would like to be baptized? And the old drunk said, I would. And he staggered down over the bank and out into the river. And he happened to get a hold of him by the scruff of the neck and he said a little prayer, and he ducked him under the water, and he pulled him up, and he said to the drunk, Did you see Jesus Christ? He said, No, I didn't. So he dunked him under again and pulled him up, and he said, Did you see Jesus Christ? He said, No, I didn't. So he said another little prayer, and he pushed him under once more, and he brought him up, and he said, Did you see Jesus Christ? He said, No, I didn't. He said, Are you sure this is where he fell in? <laughs> so, So I think this is the thing that somewhere along the line, AA helps us sort out. That when you're ready, 
he'll call you. When there's a purpose, and if you're qualified, you will know. And isn't that interesting to know that everything in our life, there's a guiding power. Isn't it nice that we don't have a whole lot of choices? There's only one choice in the big book. God is or he isn't. He's everything or he's nothing. What is your choice to be? There's four questions in the very beginning of the big book. Sometimes people don't pick up on them. It says, Could these large number of erstwhile erratic alcoholics successfully meet and work together? Question number one. Two, would there be quarrels, quarrels over membership, leadership, and money? Three, would there be strivings for power and prestige? And four, would there be schisms which would split AA apart? I think it is so important to, to be aware of these things. I was born in a little town on the east coast of Canada, right on the border of the state of Maine. Long ways from where I am now. Canada is the second largest country in the world. It's 5,004 miles across it from Newfoundland to Port Hardy, B.C. We have three million more people in the state of California than we have in the whole dominion of Canada, so we've got lots of room to expand. (laughs) But when you have an ego like mine, it cuts the population expansion area really considerably down. (laughs) Well, at least three or four are the same as me. We'll we'll identify more as I go along. (laughs) I now live about 4,600 miles from where I was born. You know, the Bible said the wise men come from the east, and I've been wise enough to stay the hell out west. (laughs) Both the sides of it. But I was born uh, in a little railroad community, a divisional town of the railroad. and uh, I can honestly say today, I don't know who my dad is, my mom was a gorgeous lady. I remember pictures of my real mom. And she was a spitting image of Gloria de Havilland, you know, with the floppy hats. And She had a hotel that she ran in this railroad town, and she supplied the men with everything. Food, loving, and lodging. I, I respect my mom. I have no idea what all the conditions were she lived under. And I sure don't blame my mom and dad for anything that's ever happened to me. And I'm not running around looking for the inner child. I'm trying to find the inner adult. (laughs) (laughs) If I could find the inner child, I'd whip hell out of him, I'll tell you that. (laughs) Regardless of what they say about abuse. But I was taken away from my real mom. I was left in a home, and where I uh, grew up in the winter, it runs usually all winter long in New Brunswick uh, from 30 to 45 degrees below zero all winter. And she left me in a a house, and she was gone with one of her friends. And uh, a lady found me there. And I don't know how long I'd been in, in my crib, but I'd been there long enough that she told the lady who raised me, that my hair had all worn off from urinating in the mattress and just turning my head and rolling. And she found me, and I was six or seven months old. And in them days back there, there wasn't all of these, you know, agencies that we have today for children and uh, adoption agencies. There was no adoption agencies. They just give you to a family and they raise you. It was just that simple. And they gave me to the two people who became my mom and dad. And I, uh, I was given the opportunity for everything. They had no money. They were very poor. Dad was a laborer on the railroad. He couldn't read or write a word. And Linda and I found out that Mom, when we brought her out here, had grade five education. But I think the thing I want to go to is that <clears throat> I don't get into a long drink-by-drink tour because when I do, I get exaggerating, and I don't need to do that. And I don't think it really matters too much. I think it says that we tell in a general way, it says what we were like, doesn't it? And it doesn't say in brackets, when drinking. I think sometimes we should leave these bracketed areas we insert into the big book out. What we were like, what happened, and what are you like today? What are you, as one of God's children, what what are you like today? Not Not the image you portray today, 
It may not, because it says in the big book that outward appearances is not inward reality at all. But when I was 16 years of age, I got put in jail for 30 days for car theft and, and, and impaired driving. When I got out of jail, that was the first time. I visited most of the dealing, decent jails from Halifax to Vancouver. And I've lectured in just about every Salvation Army mission from Montreal to Vancouver. You know what's interesting? I hear some people today criticize organized religion and the Salvation Army. I'm going to tell you what. Never will they turn you away. There will always be something to eat. There will always be an old pair of pants for you to wear. And so these are the things that I remember today. <clears throat> but shortly, about six months after I got out of jail, I come home. I, I took off on a Friday with three friends of mine to a dance. And I come back the following Wednesday, and the only way I could have any, been any drunker is to be bigger. And I walked, in the, I walked into our house, and my mom was a little short lady, and I'm the only child they had. I guess one look at me killed all desires. <clears throat> And we talk about making amends. You know, people can forgive, but I think it would be most difficult in some areas to forget. I walked in and she started giving me a lecture, as any mom would do. And I did something that has <clears throat> just never left my mind. I hauled off and whacked her right in the face and she went down in front of our kitchen sink. And I grabbed some clothes and took off for Halifax, Nova Scotia before Daddy got home from work. And that's a 17-year-old punk. <clears throat> in 1985, Mum phoned and asked me to come back and see her. She was 72 years old the next time I see her. And I listen to people today talk about all the fights they had and who they beat and how tough they were. And, you know, and they got scars going in 17 directions. And I hate to tell you, at your age, fellow, good fighters got no marks. <laughs> <clears throat> Sugar Ray Leonard, I followed his career with a hell of a scrapper, and his face is just like glass, you know. I have had a lot of decisions, most of them split. <clears throat> but it, it took a good man to beat me. It didn't take him long, but it took a good man. But in 1985, Mom asked me to come back home and see her. Now that, those are things that you look back on <clears throat> and think of. From the time I left till 1985, what did I really contribute to society? Not to mom and dad, not as a represent, not uh, representing their son. What did I really do for society? It says, "Give and ye shall receive." And here I am wondering why I didn't get this and why I didn't get that and how come I don't own this and how come I haven't got that. It's quite simple. See, our big book says our total philosophy was taken from the fields of religion and medicine. And them are the two we're taking a whack at constantly. Thank God that they had this left over for us. Because sometimes we can't say a lot of good about those things. I went to Halifax and started driving for Allied Van Lines Furniture Moving. From there to Montreal. From Montreal to Elliott Lake, Ontario. When the uranium mines first opened up. And from there, uh, headed west. Harvest Greeley's premonition, go west, young man, go west. And, uh, you see, there's nobody here, not too many, that would know a lot about the area I come from. Tom and, and Keith might, uh, from speaking back there, and uh, it's so good to see them. I remember the first time Keith and I met in Kenner, Louisiana. And uh, these people have left a, a mark in, in, in my life. It's an indelible mark that will never be erased. Dawn is sitting here tonight. Uh, I never had a brother or sister. He, he is like a brother. I don't see him a lot. I don't have to. I talk to him on the phone. But I think these are the things we look at today. Is what are you prepared to give? And so I headed to the West Coast with a Newfoundlander and a fellow from Nova Scotia and myself. And, and we'd get a gallon of that wine and some of that Don Messer music and we'd stop about twice a day and get out and just slug her out with each other. <laughs> Bloody nose, black eyes, we'd crawl back in, crank that radio up and take off again. You know, I could get, I could get one province per gallon out of that cheap wine. It, it, was, it was a lot like an umbrella going down inside and then it opened up. 
I arrived in Vancouver, and the night I arrived in Vancouver, my first night was in the Arco Rooms, which is above where our old Pender Detox used to be in the Skid Row to Vancouver. And Skid Roads became a home for me for different periods. And a lot of people say a lot of unkind thing about Skid Roads, and I came from the Skid Road. What's wrong with it? It's usually the beginning of every city, the Skid Road. It's usually the first street of just about every city. It's a great place to escape. Nobody bothers you. Kids don't bother you. Wives don't bother you. Creditors don't bother you. It's, a, it's a quite a place. It's not what at all what people think. According to the statistics, what is it? I think eight, seven and a half or eight percent of all the people in all the skid roads in the world are alcoholics. A lot of them just tramps. Just down there to escape. I know dozens and dozens that don't drink a drop that live there. And I was in a, on a drunk one night. And this fellow, I used to do a lot of singing in the beer parlors and the bars. I love to sing. I love music. And, uh, well, I've always loved to do everything I couldn't do. <clears throat> well, when you want to do something you can't do, you're the center of attraction. Everybody's wondering, what is that bloody idiot doing here? And so this guy that I was drinking with this night, he said, come on, I want you to meet this lady. So he loaded me into this car he had and took me to this house. And we went to go up these front stairs, and she had been evicted from another house three doors down and had just moved in that day. She was on welfare. And we just he got in the house, and I didn't. She pushed me back down the stairs. And uh, I mean, I'll t- want to tell you, I was drunk. And she threw him out. And we went and slept in the car. And the next morning I woke up, I vaguely remembered we were somewhere at a house. And I said to Chuck, I said, where were we last night? He said that this lady friend of mine over in Wall Street. I said, take me back there. And on the way back, we stopped at this corner store. And I went in and got a loaf of bread, a dozen eggs, and a pound of bacon. And then we went back and walked up and walked into her kitchen, and I threw them on the table, and I said, Cook me some breakfast. And she did, and I was there for the next 11 years. (laughs) I'm just like a dog. You feed me, and I don't leave. Well, I want to tell you, this woman went through a life. She was on welfare. And she went through a life she didn't even know existed. I mean, I uh, was working at Johnson Terminals, and I got in with this her, and there was four children. She had a bunch of furniture from the Salvation Army in St. Vincent de Paul. And I thought, this is not good enough for my family, so we started getting rid of it, and I started getting new stuff on credit. And that's a whole story in itself. I don't have time to tell that all. I just don't. Uh, I was in... uh, I can tell you that when I sobered up in AA, I was in small debts court 41 times my first two years sober. I owed everybody that sold anything. I never intended to pay nobody for nothing. Mixed masters, encyclopedias, powdered milk. Well, if you're not going to pay for nothing, why not have one of each? <laughs> Help and spread your business around. I never ever believed in dealing with the same furniture store your whole life and the same supermarket your whole life. Well, mainly because I couldn't. But... <clears throat> This poor woman, I'll tell you, it was absolutely incredible, the life she went through. Uh, Stoves were repossessed, TVs were repossessed, bedrooms were repossessed. These kids had no idea. And then we had a daughter. And then we had a son. And I look back at this lifestyle, and I I was working in the furniture moving business. And and I I can't believe at the time I come to AA that... uh, that at 28 years of age, I had never learned nothing from past mistakes. Absolutely nothing from past mistakes. And do you know when I come into AA, I went for years and never learned nothing from past mistakes. Nothing from past mistakes. You know, it's a lot like, I was a lot like the two hunters in Canada that were going hunting, and a plane flew them into this dock on a lake and let them out, and he said, I'll be back and get you next Wednesday. And he said, remember, two moose is all we can take out on this light plane, and you two guys. So we come back the next Wednesday and taxied up the dock, and there's the two hunters there, and they had three moose. He said, I told you, we can't get three moose, you two guys and your gear on this plane, and get out of here. And he said, look, we heard that same garbage last year. And we gave the pilot $500, and he loaded our three moose and took us a... So anyway, he went for the bribe, and he took the $500 and loaded them on. He went down the lake and off of the water and cleared the trees, and they went about... 
1,200 yards and crashed. And when they come to, one hunter said to the other, he said, where are we? He said, 100 yards further than we got last year. <laughs> and, and that's the way we've gone through life our whole life. That's the way we've gone through life. And we figure a different woman, it'll be different this time. How could it be? A hundred forms of self-deception. They were even short on that count. I mean, nothing can be different. It shouldn't be different. And it won't be different. And so I split up from Winnie and the kids. I don't know how many times, but the last time I went back to the Salvation Army. And on November the 16th of 1963 was my last drink. And I found out many years later in AA when I got reading, it was the same day as Dr. Bob died. But I come out of a Sallyann mission, and uh, how, I have no idea. I got thrown out of a Rainier Hotel beer piler, and I, I got back up to the house where the family lived. And how I got there, I have no idea. I wouldn't know. And I knocked on the door, and, and Winnie came to the door, and she said, What are you doing here? And she always did ask stupid questions. How the hell would I know? I didn't even know how I got there, uh, or what time it was. And she said, Come on in. Well, I want to tell you the situation we was in when I come to AA. In, in the province that I live in, the, them days, they can't today, they could repossess everything in your house except the beds that the children slept on. So when I rang the doorbell and come back, there was nothing left. The lights were shut off. The phone was disconnected. And Winnie was cooking what food she had for the five, four children, five children and herself on a Coleman camp stove in the kitchen. And Einstein returned. <laughs> and I went in that night I had a half a bottle of wine with me and I slept on the front room floor there was nothing in there and the next morning I woke up and I went to take a, a drink out of this bottle of wine and a voice as clear as Tom talking to me said Lou your drinking days is all over and I put the cap back on and I said to Winnie what's the number of Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, I'm dead against profanity, and you never heard my wife swear, but her very words was, if you want the goddamn number, look it up. And that's the most she'd said to me in six months, and I'm thinking, now oh, she's thinking of reconciliation already. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked up the number, and we had no phone, so I had to go next door to my neighbors, a good friend of mine who worked for Molson Breweries, to phone the intergroup office. And his eyes was getting bigger than this microphone as he heard me talking to this AA office. And Lucy, the, all she said to me was, how old are you and where do you live? She never asked me anything else. Today, when you phone her in a group office, you fill a sheet out that long, you know. And she said, I'll have two guys come up and see you this afternoon. So I got a bunch of stuff ready to go over with them. And it was just my luck. They sent two of the dumbest idiots that ever was born. <laughs> Two brothers, and they were from Nova Scotia. And I thought, you've been watching the seagulls too long. Let these two birds in. <laughs> and, you know, when you invite two people to come see you, and they have to sit on the floor, you really shouldn't have a lot to say. <laughs> but I started, I'm going to tell you. I started on my next-door neighbor, and this one brother, he, uh, he said... No, he said, Lou, he said, we live and let live. And this is November the 16th. And I said, look, it's only six weeks till Christmas. And he said, no, we do her one day at a time. And I thought, oh, my God. And every now and then he'd poke his brother in the ribs. He'd say, ain't that right, Don? He'd say, yep. And that's all he said all afternoon. <laughs> and I thought, you know, this is bloody ridiculous. You only whack me once in the ribs and I move over. You won't get a second clout at me. <laughs> so about all the... About 5 o'clock, they'd had all they could take. And they said, we're going for dinner, and we'll be back tonight at 8 o'clock to get you for a meeting. And he said, just remember, this is the smart guy, the four-word fellow. He said, just remember, if you don't take that first drink, you'll stay sober. <laughs> and out they went, and I said to Winnie, I said, that guy's got something. <laughs> I'd never thought of that quitting drinking to stay sober and I thought this guy was really pretty cool so when they went out I went out the back alley to a neighbor across the alley and, and I hope I don't ever forget my first day to me it is so vital 
I went across and up his back stairs and across his patio and into his kitchen. Roy was sitting there with a glass of whiskey and he went to take a drink. I said, put that down, it'll kill you. (laughs) Well, you can't describe an expression. You personally have to witness it. (laughs) I think that's where the word witnessing came from. you got to see it. He said, what happened to you? I said, I quit drinking. He said, when? I said, must be six, eight hours now. (laughs) He said to me, will you leave? So I did. Back home. And do you know what's interesting about that? It'll be 40 years this November the 16th since he said that. And he's never spoken to me from that day to this. I would like to say one thing when you go to your first meeting. If you've got a brother, a sister, a mom, a dad, or anyone that's an alcoholic, keep your mouth shut. What does it say in our book? But the ex-problem drinker who has found this solution, who is properly armed with facts about himself, not AA, can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. But here the Oral Roberts of AA headed out into Little Italy to pour their wine out, and I hadn't even been to a meeting. I listened to people say, oh boy, i got a sister could use this, and i got a brother-in-law really needs it, and I'm thinking, I hope they move to hell out of British Columbia if they want any peace. Because, and I've watched this over and over and over again. I've watched it over and over again. They picked me up to take me to my first meeting. I want you to visualize this. 28 years old. 130 pounds. Four pounds of that was ears. Them wine sores, if you've ever had them from when you're cold and they're just them little goosebumps pop and infect all over me. And a black shoe and a brown shoe on. That I got downtown and I go to my first meeting. The first guy inside the door welcomed my hand and he said, welcome. You're where you belong. And I thought, first time, 28 years old, and I was ever welcomed in a room. They took me up and set me right in the front row in the corner. And every guy that got up to speak was about my age, a collector's item, and they used to wear them suspenders. They all had a cane, false teeth, eyeglasses, false teeth, hearing aid. They were saying, if you want what we got. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I, I'm thinking, I can't wait to get it. Where do you keep it? And I swore they gave every one of them about $12 worth of change. And they'd lean way back over till their head touched the floor and come back up again. And they'd rattle out change. They'd say, material thing don't mean nothing. And I'd watch them leave in a Buick and a Cadillac and a Lincoln. And I thought, now, I missed something in their talk. <laughs> and it's amazing how this transpires. Material things mean absolutely nothing to me today. Because I got them. <laughs> Have you ever seen people sitting beside somebody, maybe with one arm, saying, I know just how you feel? And he looks at him and says, really? How did that happen? I think it's important that we realize people decipher what we say very quickly. And they decipher whether it's truth from false very quickly. And this program here is designed to get me out of trouble, not to get me in trouble. I can honestly say today, I'm, I'm scared to pray for anything for fear I get it. The good Lord's been so good to me. So good to me. Every dream I've ever had as a little boy has come true. And every place I've ever wanted to go, I've been. And everybody I've ever desired that I'd like to meet, I've met. And I'm just going to tell you a few little things that's happened. Three weeks before that Christmas happened, I I found $200 from a guy and bought a truck and started an old trucking business. And I ain't going to tell you what kind of a truck you'll get for $200. But that Christmas, somebody brought a Christmas tree and all the trimmings for Winnie and I and the kids. And they brought a turkey dinner. And they had her lights hooked up and her phone connected. Until this day, I have no idea who ever done it. But God set up a plan for me and it's called payback. And there was just little things that were set up that I never had nothing to do with. 
And on my second year sober, my little boy, when we were at the Hotel Vancouver at the BC Yukon Area Assembly, got into a can of Drano and ate it. He was two years old. And he was in the hospital for seven months. And the only thing today he plays golf with me now every Tuesday, he's 38 years old, is his right eye don't close all the way yet. It's pretty close. He's got a few little sparks. But his whole face looked like ground beef. He rubbed it all over his face. And he had a skin surgeon, an ear, an eye specialist, an ear, nose, and throat specialist. Seven months in the hospital. We got a bill for $175. You don't get them down here. I'm grateful for our medical plan. I'm grateful for the condition he's in today. So 18 years later, when he came back from California, his wife and I were divorced, and she moved to California. And today, Winnie is our best wife, friend, my ex-wife. She comes to our place for dinner. We wouldn't have dinner with her. She's a sweetheart of a lady. But when he came back, I took him to meet the doctor that had done the surgery. And if you could have seen him and Dr. Cordemarsh hugging each other in his office, and the tears running down their face, and he said something to me that made me aware of what this program's all about. He said, you know, I hear right away about my bad jobs, but I very seldom ever hear about the good ones. <clears throat> If somebody does something for you, let them know it. Let them know it. Not that you're wanting something. You have no idea what it'll do for them. So I went up to the children's hospital <clears throat> and asked if I could put a TV in, the new one they built. And they said, no, we have a TV in every room. So we found a room there, and Daryl and I set up a gym. We put three rowing machines and two weight sets in and bicycles and little trampolines and that. And I was able to go up there for three years on a Tuesday night. When you go in there and see a bunch of kids like that, and they're as good as they're ever going to be, and you you got something to grumble about, come on, let's get down to business. So I ran into a guy, old C, something PA, and I was introduced to the, a system they have for doing the 12 steps. And I've had a 12-step, an in-depth 12-step meeting for 31 years. And I'm talking about, for me, that I look at the steps as they're printed, not as I interpret them. Because interpretation in one dictionary says avoidance of truth. And there's, there's a word in six of the twelve steps that we hate with a passion. And it's the word and. And we practice these principles in all our affairs. And when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Every time the word and is used, there's something to follow. <laughs> we don't like that. I hear people read step one. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. There's no and there. There's a dash. See, when my mom died, her headstone would read Yvonne Marie Fenimore, 1913-2000. Those two sets of numbers mean nothing other than to tell you how old she was. That dash means everything. See, it said we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. I've often thought, why didn't they say we admitted we were an alcoholic and that we were powerless? Because I was powerless over taking the substance that would allow me to do whatever I wanted to do and in most cases get away with it. I could go to a party of 40 or 50 people and, and make a pass at Keith's wife and they'd say, oh, Lou was drunk. Don't give me that crap. There was 30 other women in there. It's the only one attached. I've been looking over that body for a long time. <clears throat> And it said our lives, not our life. It doesn't say our life, it said our lives. There's an S on that. See, I have a physical life, and I have a spiritual life. And I have a family life, I have an employment life, and I have a sexual life. Our lives have become unmanageable. At any given time, after I sobered up, I always had a couple that were manageable. But I always had two or three that were unmanageable. You have no idea... You know, I'm six years sober paying $800 a pair for alligator shoes and buying used boots and the three vets for my son to go to school in. My image was very important. Outward appearances is not inward reality at all. So these steps really, you know, actually they're, uh, they're quite simple. You know, one and two you fess up, three you look up, four, five, six, and seven you clean up, eight and nine you pay up, and ten, eleven, and twelve you keep it up. <laughs> it's not a difficult process at all it says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves not in a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity and it's got nothing to do with mental hospitals positive and negative thinking 
and I'd done vintage cars for years. That was my hobby. So I figured you might as well look up the meaning of the restore in case someone asks you why you're doing it. And restore in the dictionary says to return to original form. Okay? I'm not a miracle. I was returned to what God created in the very beginning. I was returned to the point where I can forgive. I can say I'm sorry. I can love. I can trust. I can even obey. I know some don't like that word. But I can. And so I think these are the things that were so important to me. And when you look in in, in the big book of the eight basic problems of the alcoholic, it says we were having trouble with personal relationships. Hell, I wrote that. We couldn't control our emotional nature. Some of this is humorous. We were a prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy, and we couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. Those are the eight basic problems the alcoholics. All in this book. Some of it's hidden, you know. And uh, but it, it, and it's. I think the problem with this big book, why it is so frustrating and confusing, is it's based on a, on a part of life that we know nothing about called reality. <laughs> Said we made a decision, only time they ask that in 12 steps, to turn our will and our lives, my thinking and my actions, and it doesn't say I turn it over to God. Not at all. Well, not what I read. It says I turn it over to the care of God. If I turn something over to Keith, I expect him to look after it. I don't think about it again. This one here tells me I can take my son to them and ask them if they'd look at him while we go to look after him while we go to a play tonight. When the play is over, I must take him back and nurture him and love him and help him grow. You see, but we're the type of people, once we turn something over, it's no longer ours. Yes, it is. <laughs> Hate to tell you that now after you've been turning it over twenty five years. <clears throat> it is still your responsibility. See, a lot of people believe in God, but very few people trust him that I find in, in the area that I come from. We have, like in Vancouver, a lot of people don't realize it's not cold. We play golf 52 weeks a year. We can stand down on Granville Street in the center of the city on Christmas Day and look up. Keith has been there and Tom's been there and see five ski runs. Now, I believe the cable going up those mountains are very strong, but I don't trust them enough to get in the gondola. <laughs> it's easy to believe but very difficult to trust. And then they asked me to make a searching and fearless moral, not a fearful immoral, of my life. My life. Nobody else's. Nobody else's. This has nothing to do with what they done to me. It has everything to do with what I did to them because of what they did to me. And then it said we admitted to God, to ourselves, and another human being, the exact nature. There's no S on that word. It's not the natures of our wrongs. I'd done a retreat in Portland, Oregon, the one Father Barney started four or five years ago. And they had five priests there. And they allowed 30 minutes for a step five. And I said, well, gee, I must have it wrong where I'm from. It's three, four, five hours. And he said, well, we thought what it said there is just the nature of the wrong. Like if you were a thief, I can't afford to stay here and listen to you tell me everything you've ever stole. I want to know why did you steal When I come into AA, I was unfaithful to my wife. And many people knew that. But it wasn't the case. They didn't want to know that I was unfaithful. They knew that. They wanted to know why. You know, this insecure little boy wanted attention. One night, Linda and I, Linda knew my story when we met, like, the back of my hand. One night we were going home from a meeting, and a lady who's a good friend of ours to this day, she said, uh, you know, Winnie had a quite a bit of trouble when Lou first came in because he, he screwed around on her. No, I have no problem with that. Anyone t- anybody here, you can go tell whoever you want. The thing that upset me with her is she didn't tell Linda that she was the lady. <laughs> so you know what? You're forced to confront these people. <laughs> when you're wrong, promptly admit it. And if you won't, maybe someone will help you. Don't you worry about God. He won't let you down. He'll put someone in your path. And so I think these are the things that I look at. It says that I had to humbly ask him only after I was entirely ready. See, a lot of people are ready, 
But the word entirely is a very has a big impact. Are you entirely ready? Well, I think I am. Stop right there. Go back to the next step and stay on it till you're entirely ready. I think lots of times we want to kid ourselves. And I wound up in Alcoholics Anonymous because I wanted to kill myself, kid myself. But AA has been so good to me as a result of these two. I've made a list of all the people I've harmed. It doesn't say hurt. I can leave here today and tear Tom to shreds or Don to shreds for the next four years. And all of a sudden it gets back to me. And they said, how could a friend hurt me like that? Now it's hurt, but for four years it's been hard. Dr. Bob says we must watch our errant tongues. And it's comforting to know that from that day to this, there's never been a word of gossip in Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) I think this is a program we live. You know, it's like the lady that was at a stoplight. And she was looking through some papers on the seat of her car in a briefcase. And the light turned green, she was still looking. All of a sudden, it went back to red, and she was still looking. Then when it went back to green, she finally drove off. And the guy behind her in the car was just going stark, raving mad. And a policeman pulled him over and arrested him. And he said to this police officer, he said, you can't arrest me for throwing a fit in my own personal car. He said, I'm not arresting you for that. Well, he said, what are you arresting me for? He said, well, I've seen that praying hand swaying on your rearview mirror. And that easy does it and live and let live and let live sticker on your back bumper. And I thought it was a stolen vehicle. <laughs> So I'd suggest until you can learn to live according to those slogans, put them on your dash. They will be much more effective. I was asked to speak at a conference 13 years ago as a fill-in. Someone backed out, and I drove up about 500 miles to Cranbrook, B.C. And Linda was supposed to be at a birthday party in Calgary, and her husband had died two years before with MS. So she decided to come out to Cranbrook to take this drunken nephew of hers to this roundup and see if he'd see anything or hear anything. And so she brought him, and he spent the whole weekend there. And it couldn't have worked out better. He's still drunk, and we're married. (laughs) You can't make anybody do anything. Now, this lady here has meant everything to me. Like, 13 years, we've never had an argument or a disagreement. And that all comes down to control. I wouldn't want to change a thing about her. And we are so opposite. Like I said, of all the things that she loves, mountain climbing or climbing cliffs, and we were in New Zealand, she jumped off the original bungee bridge there. She's just, and yet we do everything together. We shop together, we golf together, we walk our Jack Russell together. Everything we do is together. But I wouldn't want to change a thing about her. Why do you do this? How come you have to go there? That's not what it's all about. It's love, it says in the dictionary, is genuine concern for your fellow human being. Under And I have never had anyone treat me with so much love, so much care. And she's a drunk. We go to the same group, belong to the same group, go to the same step meeting. And then, I think this is what it's all about, is for me not to avoid anything, and she doesn't try to avoid to anything. And it says to continue to take personal inventory and when I am wrong, not if I am wrong. Promptly admit it. It doesn't say explain it. I never admitted anything in my life. Never did. I'd say I'm sorry for what I said to you last Saturday night, but if you didn't open your mouth, I'll say, now I'm going to tell you the reason I said it and give me five minutes and I'll have you apologize and you was even there. And, and how many times have we done that? To save our own backside. This thing is so simple. It really is. It's so simple. If we just look, you know, I I think of the guy that died and went to heaven. And God ushered him into this magnificent room and said, you get unpacked and and, uh, settle down and I'll come back and pick you up and show you around. So while God was gone, the guy looked way down the clouds and there was a whole bunch of young people down there, rock music, going, drinking, dancing, having a ball. When God came back in, he said to God, he said, what's this I see down here in the clouds? There's young people down there drinking, dancing, rock music, going, having a ball. He said, oh, that's hell. Well, he said, I can tell you, you sent me the wrong place. That's where I'm supposed to be. So they gathered up his gear and shipped him down. He arrived in this stinking, dirty, hot, grungy hole of a room, and in comes Satan. He said, who are you? He said, I'm Satan. He said, what's this? He said, it's hell. He said, what's this I see up here in the cloud? A whole bunch of young people drinking, dancing, rock music, going, having a ball. He said, that's our marketing department. That's what got us in here. 
1985, when they phoned and asked if I would be their speaker, and I said, where? And it was in the Republic of South Africa. And here's this little boy from New Brunswick. I got on a plane and took off, and I had a business at that time where I could take as much time as I wanted. So I went for three months, and they flew me to 29 places throughout Africa. And I spent four and a half days in Soweto. Seven million black people, and I'm the only white person. And you should see the gifts they gave me. They treated me like a king. I've never been treated so well. And AA, people say AA is the same all over the world. That's mostly people who haven't traveled. I'll tell you that. AA is not the same all over the world. The printed program is the same, but conditions aren't the same. And we should be aware of that. It's up to God's job for me is to make this world a better place for everybody. And in order for me to make this world a better place to live, all I have to do is change me, not you. And that's so difficult when you're smart. <laughs> I have to be very careful of whether I call someone an idiot or a jerk, because I have to have the same qualities or I would never spot them in them. And it's very unfair to take my inventory and use someone else's name. It's like the guy in this doctor went out to see all his patients at this mental hospital one day and he walked out and here was this guy out there with a wheelbarrow full of cement and a load of bricks building a wall and he watched him for a while and he said pray tell me why you're in here well he said my family resented me so they had me committed well he said I've never seen bricklaying like that in my life he said it's a piece of symmetrical beauty he said we could use people with your talents on the outside I'm on the board of this hospital he said when it meets next week I'm going to stand on your behalf so he turned to walk away, and this bird threw a brick and hit him right in the back of the head. And down he went. When he come to from this, he turned to this guy, and he said, Now, why did you do that? He said, I just didn't want you to forget next week. And, I mean, that's what we've done all through life, and wondered, and, and wondered why people reacted the way they did. It says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, spiritual awakening in the dictionary says a complete transformation of thought. So if you have completely changed your way of thinking as a result of these steps, then we carry this message. Because it don't talk anywhere about me carrying my message and practice these principles in all our affairs. You see, I come in here and practice affairs with no principles, and they said, no, we've got a whole different approach to that, Luke. <laughs> The first old guy that took me out in a 12-step call, I was sober, I think, three weeks. Gordy, he was our first member in B.C. And I said, what the hell can I say to anyone? I'm sober three weeks. He said, nothing. I just want you to sit there so he can see what the hell he'll look like if he keeps drinking. <laughs> if, you're, if, you're, if you feel inferior, it doesn't help at all. But you see, little do you realize, I had no message to carry. That's just the way he had to say it for me to get it registered. Until I get to 12, step 12. I have an example of not drinking, but a message to carry I didn't have. In 1990, I was phoned and asked if I would set up an alcohol and drug program for the BC Racing Commission, thoroughbred and standardbred horse racing. And I set it up. And we came to Kentucky for our training. And in 1994, that very program that I set up was adopted in Lexington as the role model program for all 57 racetracks in North America. And I always was saying today of the jockey from our track, a leading jockey, in fact, of the 10 leading jockeys there, seven are sober and clean in AA, but I had one of them that was in treatment out playing golf one day, and he said, you know, riding a horse in a race in AA is about the same. And I said, what do you mean, Alan? He said, you just go to the front and improve your position. <laughs> So just remember that. Don't matter where you are today. Go to the front and improve your position. That's what it's all about. I think probably one of the crowning glories in 1991, uh, my mom phoned Linda and I. Daddy had died. And asked if we'd come back home and pick her up to come out and spend her final years with me. So I had eight years to see her every day and to be with her every day. And when I was out of town at a roundup, Linda was in with her every day. And we got a little Jack Russell, Keisha. And that became her whole life, that little dog. She just loved her so much. And you know, when the day I was took four years before one night I was going home and she took my face in her hands and gave me a kiss and said, I love you, Louie. Four years before that came. But you know, God told me, wait and it will come. Don't rush it. Wait and it will come. And when she died, 
The night we went home, they said she won't be here tomorrow morning, Lou. Three o'clock, they phoned and said she was still there, alive. We got up and had breakfast, and I phoned at six, and the nurse said, no, she's still living. And so we went in, Linda and I, gave her a kiss, and put her hands through and held her hands. And Linda said, okay, Mom, you can go. And just like that, she went. So peaceful. She never suffered. And you know, that woman, I don't like to mention it, but I, I think it means something to the people who have blamed their parents for everything. Her, her will was left with a government agent, and they brought it over to Linda, and she opened it up, and Mom had made me the executor of her estate. Here's a woman, grade 5 education, the wife of a labor, and woke up, and she said, I'll leave half of my estate to Louis Ralph Finnamore and half of my estate to Linda Don Finnamore and nearly $200,000 she saved out of the labor's wages, and, and me running around like the Errol Flynn of Canada. <laughs> and all of a sudden... The same people you run down do something like that. It really makes you aware of what the real true meaning of size. Every, you know, we just spent the winter in New Zealand with my first 12-step call last winter. And uh, we have a lot of gifts, a lot of gifts today. So many. We've traveled extensively the world over. And that's not bad for a guy who sang every day for two glazed donuts and if I accepted Christ as my personal savior they'd throw in another one <laughs> see, see today God gives me everything and I don't have to sing for nothing and I always think you know AA is uh, I gotta shut up here but you know there's nothing so bad that it cannot be worse there's nothing that time cannot mend and troubles, no matter how many you have, must surely come to an end. You have stumbled well, so have I in my time. Don't take it the past and regret. You're sorry, God knows, so leave it at that. Let the past be the past and forget. Don't despair, don't give up, and just be yourself. The self that is highest and best. And forgive all my faults, and I'll forgive yours. And we leave up to God all the rest. I always like the story of it's one of Caesar's, it's not mine. Uh, the preacher on Sunday morning in a cowboy town, a little western community, he was up behind the pulpit, and he looked out, and there was one cowboy sitting there. And he said to him, there's only two of us. Do you think we should hold a service? And he said, well, Reverend, I don't know a great deal about preaching, but I know quite a bit about cattle. And if I pulled up to a crowd with a load of hay and there was a cow there, I'd feed it. So he went up, and he gave him everything he had in Scripture, verse, and song. And when he got done, sat down, he said to the cowboy, he said, what do you think? Well, he said, Reverend, I don't know a great deal about preaching, but I know quite a bit about cattle, and if I pulled up to a crowd with a load of hay and there was a cow there, I wouldn't give it the whole load. <laughs> so you've been a terrific group of people. You really have. I only pray that I can be the type of friend you've been to me. Good night, and God bless you.